Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Good to see those of you, well, not see, you see us, we don't see you. Those of you who are turning, uh, tuning in online this morning, I'm Pastor Matt. We are so grateful that you're worshiping with us here at Victory Life Church this morning. We are blessed to be able to worship the Lord. Hey, uh, if you are relatively new here to Victory Life, we want to give you a warm welcome this morning and would love to connect with you. One of the great ways that you can connect is to hop on our website, vlchurch.com. Really, the easiest way to do that is in the back of the seat in front of you, you've got a QR code. If you scan that with your phone, it'll take you right to our website, take you to a new here tab. You can give us your name, your email. We would love to tell you more about Victory Life Church this week and, uh, and how you can get involved or how you can find out more about who we are. We get to know you. It's a wonderful exchange. So, if you have the opportunity to do that today, we'd be very grateful. Also want to make mention today that next week we are embarking on the cast of Christmas Advent Journey. And uh, we're really excited about that. You have something in your hand right now with which to invite someone in your neighborhood, someone at the place that you like to do, go for lunch, uh, someone in your family. We are going to have great Christmas music every single week. We're going to have a festive atmosphere. Is it going to be festive? Oh, yeah. Very festive. Going to have a festive atmosphere. We're going to have some live dramatic presentations. We're going to have refreshments each and every week, photo booths, so people can take Christmas photos, maybe get those ready to send out uh, as Christmas cards. We're going to have all types of wonderful things going on. And the most important part about the cast of Christmas is each and every week this holiday season, We'll be preaching the gospel. We'll be talking about Jesus and what he came to do to seek and to save the lost. Great time to invite your friends, your neighbors, your relatives, anybody around you. Now, if you're a big-time invitor, there are multiples of those invitations as you walk out the door this morning. You are not limited to one. We'd love you to take 12. So feel free to grab those this morning, and you can make your way out the doors and, and into the lives of some people who need to know Jesus. Also want to make mention to you, we are uh, done with our children's intensives uh, for the fall, but we are beginning a Christmas book club for our children called One Wintry Night. You can sign up in the South Foyer today and get all the information on how to be part of the family Christmas book club. You may say, well, I don't have any, any kids here in the church, but maybe you have grandkids, or maybe you have some neighborhood kids that you can embark on this journey with us. We'd love for you to be part of this One Wintry Night book club. You can find out information down in the South Foyer today in our children's department. We'd love for you to be a part. And then finally, this morning, you all know that we have the opportunity to give this morning. And so, if you came prepared to worship the Lord with your tithes and offerings, you can do that by text. You can do that on our website. Or you could do that by dropping an offering in the basket as you walk out today. Well, I want to make mention this morning, before we go any further, uh, of two great losses to our congregation in the past week. Many of you know uh, both Harold Hosterman and Marjorie Wilhelm went home to be with the Lord. Two longtime members of Victory Life who have served this church faithfully and served all of us faithfully. And so this morning as we pray and prepare our hearts for worship, we're going to pray over those two families. And the first song we're going to sing today is called Blessed Be Your Name. And it talks about worshiping God both in the good times and the hard times. And some of you are living in the good times today, and some of you are living in the hard times today. But wherever you're living, it's a great day to bless the name of the Lord. Would you stand with us as we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and we pray right now that you would be with those that mourn. God, you say in your word that you are near to the brokenhearted, and you save those who are crushed in spirit. So I pray that you would make your promises felt in the Hosterman and Wilhelm families this week. God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts now to worship you in spirit and in truth. Would you remind us, regardless of the state of our family, the state of the world, the state of our community, the state of the church, whatever it may be, Lord, that you are worthy of praise because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So, Lord, I pray that we would prepare our hearts right now to be ready to bless your name. And I pray that as we bless your name, your presence would be keenly felt. We pray all these things in the powerful and precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's choose. 
to praise him today. Whether in the good times or the bad, we give you praise. We bless your name. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. Though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. Every blessing, every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the dark closes in Lord still I will say blessed be the name of the Lord blessed be your name blessed be the name of the Lord blessed be your glorious name blessed be your name when the sun shining down on me when the world's all as it should be blessed be your name blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering though there's pain in the offering blessed be your name every blessing every blessing Turn it, turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name.
reward eternal crown the endless song how sweet the sound of grace amazing grace unfailing grace that saves my soul grace on ending grace on sing about his grace this morning because it does save our soul it does give us that eternal crown it is greater than the air we breathe i like this definition of grace that grace is getting what we don't deserve god is giving us something that we do not deserve when we believe on his name and that would be eternal life i know that because it says it in this scripture in titus 3 verse 5 through 8 it says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's not getting what we do deserve, which is death. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, baptism and sanctification, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to him and have eternal life. Have that hope of eternal life this morning. If you have that grace this morning, you know you can bless him in the good times and the bad because the eternal crown is eternal life. This morning, there are those who've gone before us and they're already singing. Let's praise with them this morning and worship. Be 
Lord Jesus, there are throngs around your throne this morning giving you worship and praise, looking forward to the day that we join them. Oh Lord, until such time, may we give you the praise and glory that you deserve upon this earth. Lord, that we would be your church your kingdom, your people, proclaiming that Jesus is who he says he is, has done what the word says he has done, and will do what we look forward to him doing. We ask these things today in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. At this time, young disciples, you may be dismissed to go down the hall and get a message on your level. We're excited for you to go see Miss Jody, and you will be studying what we're studying today. So at the lunch table today, parents, make sure you ask some good questions, but that might mean you might need to take notes today. We'll just see. All right? If you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn in them to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, that's where we're going to be this morning. We have been talking this month of November about personal pursuit, pursuing people in our lives that we believe God is leading us toward, and we've said over and over again that someone is getting ready to know Jesus at a location near you. We believe that based on the authority of the Scripture. We believe that based on the work of the Holy Spirit in this world. We believe what Jesus said when he said, my father is always at work. We believe that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We believe that God is already working in the hearts and the lives of the people around us, and he's just looking for us to join him in the work that he is doing. I was doing some research this week on evangelism. Good news telling, that's really what evangelism means. It comes from the Greek word gospel, or, or the Greek uh, equivalent of the word gospel. It means to tell the good news. And I learned this week <laughs> that there are three types of evangelism. There is passive evangelism, planned evangelism, and pulpit evangelism. Did you know that? This is the type of things you can find out when you Google words like evangelism. Now, I didn't find this in any commentary. I might have seen it on Wikipedia. I'm not going to lie. But I learned that there was passive and there was plan and there was pulpit evangelism. Now, for most of us as Christians, we would love to be involved in passive evangelism. That's where we go living our lives as Christians out in the community. And we are so winsome, so wonderful, so marvelous in the ways in which we interact with other human beings that people come to our door and knock and say, Merry Christmas, I want to know Jesus. I know that's going to happen to so many of you this fall or this Christmas season. Looking forward to that for you. But passive evangelism is not to be mocked. In fact, the Bible says that we will lead such exemplary lives among those who do not yet know Christ that they will want to glorify God on the day that he visits us. Then there's things like planned evangelism. I have a plan, and I'm going to execute it. This would be an example of planned evangelism. My church is doing something really neat for the holidays, and so I have people that I have been in the life of, I have people that I have spent time with, that I'm going to go ahead and risk rejection to invite them to church. I was talking to someone in my prayer group this week that says, I have a family, I'm so excited. They're coming for the cast of Christmas, so tell me a little bit more about that so I can get them amped up about it. I'm like, yeah, 
Yeah, because we planned something. And that allows you to do something in the world that's simple. And so I just encourage you today, take more of these as you leave today. There's places you go to lunch, people in your workplace, folks in your school that you could give this out to. They have a really nifty QR code on the back that they can scan and find out more. But you never know who God might be working on. Someone might look at you and go, never. But someone else might look at you and say, absolutely, that sounds great. Did you say cookies and wassail? And you'll say, yes, I did say cookies and wassail, all right? So there's going to be some excitement around that. And then there's what was called pulpit evangelism. Thanks, Google. And pulpit evangelism is the idea that if you can just get your friends to church, your pastor will preach such a powerful and compelling message that they will have no choice but to become Christians. I can't promise that. Right? But that was the third one, right? That, that just, you just get into church, that, that, that that'll happen. But you know what? I think pulpit evangelism is a bit of a misnomer. I think pulpit evangelism really should be called Holy Spirit evangelism. And I mean that to say that there will be people who walk in the doors of the church, maybe this is your experience, who will feel the presence of the Lord, a presence that they do not feel in the world, a presence that they do not personally feel on a regular basis, And they're going to feel that from the people of God. They're going to feel that from the atmosphere. They're going to feel that in the music. They might feel that through the sermon. And there is a chance that the Lord Jesus is going to work in their heart and bring them to the point of salvation. So let's replace pulpit evangelism with spirit evangelism. Trusting that when people come in the doors of churches all over the United States this Christmas season, that the spirit of the Lord will meet them there. And that is going to draw them one step closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we kind of have a couple of different forms of evangelism kind of coming to their confluence here, do we not as a church? Because you can do something planned, but then bring them to a place where you're praying and saying, God, I, just, I would pray that, that as, as that person walks in these doors... Over the course of the next four weeks, whether it's December 5th or whether, whether it's Christmas Eve, that your Holy Spirit would meet them here, drawing them closer to the one who came to earth to save them and to make them new. So today I want to do this last message about personal pursuit from one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. Maybe one of the most famous chapters is the best way to put that, and that is Luke chapter 15. It's in Luke chapter 15 that we learn about three lost things. And I'm not going to talk about all the lost things today because we don't have time for all of that. But Jesus tells three of his most powerful parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost or prodigal son. Now, I don't know about you, but there is few things in the world that get me more upset than when I lose my keys or when I lose my wallet or when I lose my cell phone. And I do this on a weekly basis, I'll assure you. Gina knows, my wife Gina knows that these things happen to me, so she bought me a bin, the mat bin. The bin is for my wallet and keys and phone. You would think, well, that would solve the problem. Au contraire, mon frere. That does not solve the problem because I have to remember to put those things in the bin in order to retrieve them from the bin. And so just last week, I got back from a week off of vacation, and it's Monday, and I have no keys. No keys, Aaron. None. I thought, I don't know where my keys are. I can't get in the church. So I came to church with my other car that I did have keys to, and I waited for someone to let me in on Monday morning. And somebody let me in, and amazingly, the keys to my office were sitting on my desk. Uh, Somehow, I had locked my office and then walked back into my office, left the keys on the counter, and then went home for a week to 10 days. Yeah. Everything seemed normal. Now, the other day, I was taking a walk in the neighborhood, and a frantic child, probably nine years old, comes up and says, have you seen a little white and black dog named Dixie? I said, well, I don't normally introduce myself to the neighborhood dogs, but no, I have not seen Dixie. Now, this this young lady was frantic. She was red in the face. You could tell she was near tears. I felt terrible because she wanted to find her dog. When Bella the Beagle, my dog, escapes, I'm sometimes hoping that we do not find her. So I don't know the panic that this girl was operating under. 
Some of you are like, he's a horrible person. This is our last time at this church. But Bella escapes at least once a week. In fact, we were walking her not too long ago, and my neighbor behind me goes, oh, Bella, you're on a leash today. That's new. So anyhow, I don't have that panic when Bella escapes. I assume she's a... But, but, but Dixie had escaped, and this little girl was panicked and horrified and upset. And it is that emotion, that emotion of, I gotta go to work and I don't have my keys. My beloved dog, not Bella, but Dixie is lost. And I need to find her. It is that emotion that Jesus wants to play on. And he is. He was a powerful rhetorical speaker. Try writing a parable sometime. It's not easy. Jesus was was, was wanting to, to have us connect to that emotion as he told these stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin and horribly, the lost son. And he does so with purpose. And I want us to focus in on the parable of the lost sheep this morning, and I want us to focus in on the context, because it fits the pattern of pursuit that we've been talking about this November. So if you're in Luke chapter 15, I want to talk to you today about personal pursuit part four, the scandal, the lost, and the Pharisee. The scandal, the lost, and the Pharisee. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15 of Luke. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. He said, Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, for the sake of time this morning, I can't read the, the, the next two parables. But, but Jesus doubles down and triples down on this imagery of lostness. He then moves on to the lost coin. Then he moves on to the lost son. He really wants the Pharisees that he's talking to to understand where he's coming from. He, he was preaching at them. You ever get in that mood? Somebody gets you going on the thing that makes you most passionate, and the next thing you know, it's eight minutes later, and you're kind of embarrassed, and you say, sorry for preaching. It happens to me regularly. It must not happen to you. But, 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 but Jesus really goes in on this concept of loss. But I don't know if you remembered the context here. I don't know that I remembered the context prior to this week. The context is these Pharisees who are scandalized. They're really upset with Jesus because he's with tax collectors and sinners. Now, this is not shocking to us. This doesn't scandalize us. We're American Christians. We've been raised on the idea that Jesus goes after the sinner. We've been inundated with the Jesus who loves the sinner. We're completely enamored with Jesus who loves us in spite of our copious and repetitive sin. Therefore, there's no moral outrage for us when we see Jesus talking to tax collectors and sinners. How could there be? It's 2,000 years ago, and the context is vastly different. But it's not so vastly different when we think about human nature. Because these tax collectors and sinners were not people that were just overcome by vice or addiction or selfishness. They were a class of people. They were a group of people, and they were a group of people that you and I at that time would have had trouble with, most likely. And the reason we would have had trouble with these folks is not that they necessarily engaged in a particular vice that we found was vile or or an act that we thought was wrong. It's that their lifestyle was so vastly different than the Pharisees and the scribes. You see, the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes were all ethnically Jewish. They had all been raised to believe that they were God's people. They, They all had the Old Testament in common except that the tax collectors and the sinners were those who had broken the community covenant. They were unpatriotic when it came to being Jewish people. They they had no regard for their national identity, and, and therefore they had decided that they would not look Jewish, 
act Jewish, nor follow the rules and the laws that were found in the Old Testament. They had broken faith with their fellow people. They, they, they were betrayers. And of course, we know that tax collectors themselves worked for the Roman government, collecting taxes on their Jewish brethren. These were folks who had acted in such a way as to betray their national heritage. And the Pharisees and the scribes are really upset that Jesus would take time to sit down and eat with these people when they had nothing in common because they were betrayers and breakers of the societal contract. So what was taking place here is very much a part of human nature. The Pharisees and the scribes, those who knew the law and those who tried to follow it precisely, were scandalized because they were overcome with what's called comparative righteousness. I don't want to assume that the Pharisees weren't aware of their own sin. I don't want to assume that the scribes were not aware of their own sin. In fact, when we get down to it, most of us are aware on some level of our faults and our failures. But what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing that day which is akin to something that we can do today, is engage in this comparative righteousness. We look at the other person and we judge their righteousness or lack thereof in comparison to our righteousness. And then we base our assumptions on that judgment. That's what's taking place here. They're saying those betrayers, those people who have broken the community covenant, the national contract, betrayed our heritage, they have no right to have a relationship with you, Jesus. How dare you sit down with them? These people were opponents on the deepest level because they stood for everything, theoretically, that was against God and his goodness. And it is in this scandalous moment that Jesus produces three of his most powerful parables and what Jesus does is recontextualize their thinking by saying to these Pharisees and scribes, it's not about who they are, it's about what they are. It's not about their current state in regards to what, how they relate to you in this comparative righteousness. It's about their state in a, in a metaphysical, theological sense. Something bigger is going on here, guys. Let me lift your eyes. Because the, the real problem Jesus begins to describe to them is that there's a lost sheep that's in trouble. These people that he's sitting down with and eating with, they are exposed to certain ruin. This is how Jesus sees people who are not part of his flock. Lost is lost. And that's it. There isn't gradations of lost. There isn't this person is this type of sinner and that person is that type of sinner and therefore they are lost on the level four and they are lost on the level eight. No, lost is just lost. And that's all there is to it. That's what they are. Folks who do not yet know Jesus, they are lost. There, there isn't a value system as compared to the 99 and the one that goes away, it's not that they're more valuable and they're just a stupid jerk that got themselves lost. They're just lost. And that's all there is to it. And Jesus signals the Father heart of God that Jesus is not going to leave people for dead. It doesn't matter if they got themselves lost. It doesn't matter if they're jerks. It doesn't matter if they've broken the community covenant or don't even espouse the natural, national heritage. It doesn't matter if they've hurt others, because who among us has caused no pain? What Jesus is, is, is bringing to the forefront of their minds in the midst of this scandal is that these people are lost. That's all that matters. Put the scandal to the side. These people need to be found. And the extent to which Jesus goes to bring the lost in is astounding. Because he's going to leave those who are safe within the herd to move and find with no guarantee of finding taking place the one that is lost. So the, the shepherd in this story exerts effort 
and then double effort. You get to the sheep, and then you sling the sheep over your shoulder and bring them all the way back. There's risk. There's no guarantee of success, but the shepherd goes anyways. What Jesus does is make a a turn here in the thinking of what's taking place in this moment. It would seem from the first verse of this passage, if you want to look back, that the the tax collectors and the sinners are pursuing Jesus. Look at verse 1. It says, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to listen to him. So it would seem that, that they're pursuing Jesus, right? Except look at the parable that Jesus tells. He wants to make it known that it's not the sheep that are finding the shepherd, it's the shepherd that are finding the sheep. He signals that that's why he's there. That's what he's doing. That's what he's after. It reminds me of a passage from another gospel where Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to the world to condemn the world, but to what? Seek and to save that which was lost. It's what Jesus does. It's why he came to earth in the first place. And the problem is is that the Pharisees that day, they can't get their mind wrapped around lost. And you say, how do you know they couldn't get their mind wrapped around lost? Well, on the authority of the scripture, Jesus had to tell them two more times. And there were, there were multiple occasions within the book of Luke where you can just sense that Jesus is kind of shaking his head at these guys going, what are you thinking about? You're completely missing it. And this was a moment where they were completely missing it. Jesus is taking great effort to pursue the lost. And when he finds them, he doesn't kick them in the rear end and say, get back with the flock. He puts them over his shoulder and continues the arduous work of bringing them back to the place where they should have been all along. So there really is no scandal in Jesus' social interaction because he's explaining the heart of God from the beginning. From the moment where God clothed Adam and Eve, God has been working to reunite his lost people with himself. Now, I want to make something abundantly clear here this morning, and I think it's an important thing to to talk about. Many people love the story of the woman caught in adultery because of what Jesus does in order to make sure that she doesn't face certain ruin that day, and, and says, he who is without sin may cast the first stone. He does something similar in this story, and I want you to see it. Would you turn in your Bibles, if you still have them, no, turn in your Bibles, you should still be on that page. Just go down to verse 7 with me. Jesus is kind of bringing the story to a close, and he says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What is Jesus saying? Is, Is he looking at the Pharisees and scribes and saying, they're really not sinners, They're just lost. Not at all. Jesus is affirming at least one thing here, is that the lost are sinners. But I want to make something abundantly clear before we go any further. Verse 7 is not doctrine, it's irony. Is anybody catching it? Do you think Jesus might have said this with a sad smirk on his face? The idea that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one lost sheep who returns, over one sinner than repents, than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance? Do you think, do you think Jesus was, was really creating doctrine in this moment? Or, or, or bringing to light the real scandal of this moment? We'll get to that in a minute. Let's remember that Jesus says these lost are sinners in need of repentance. This is who they are. Who are the lost? The lost are sinners who need to turn towards God, lest they face certain ruin. That's who they are. And I think we need to remember that. We sang a song about the grace of God this morning and how important it is in the lives of the believer. The grace of God finds its importance in the fact that we are sinners saved by grace. And so I want to remind us today, as we think about the lost, that they are facing certain ruin. They may be hurt and in need of love, but they are primarily sinners who need to repent and turn towards God. They may be outcasts in need of inclusion, but they are primarily folks who are estranged from God because of their sin and need to repent, need to turn towards him. They are almost certainly mistaken 
and in need of greater understanding. But the primary aspect of lost sheep is that they're sinners. They're folks who are estranged from God who need to turn towards him. That They are exposed to certain ruin if a shepherd does not go out and find them. Therefore, Jesus says he will go to great and strenuous, strenuous lengths to save them. And then Jesus hits him. He hits him with this ironic statement. This statement about, oh, you're all so righteous. But what Jesus is doing to the Pharisees and scribes is kind of rough. Because he's equating them with the sheep. See, these Pharisees and scribes, they, they believed that they were God's shepherds. They, they would have looked at the book of Ezekiel and said, yeah, that's us. We're the shepherds of God's flock. We're the leaders of God's flock. And what Jesus is signaling here is, no, no, you're sheep too. The real scandal is this. Pharisees, do you care for the souls of these lost sheep the way God does? That's the scandal of the moment. The scandal is not that, that, that Jesus is sitting with sinners and tax collectors who have broken the community covenant. The scandal is that the Pharisees did not care for these souls. You say, what do you base that on? I base that on where we end in Luke chapter 15. It's fitting that we should rejoice because your brother was dead and now he is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. Do you not care for the soul of the one who has escaped the flock of God? Heaven cares for these souls, Pharisees, but do you? Jesus is doubling and tripling down on this particular parable because he wants to get it in the heads of the sheep who fashion themselves shepherds, that to be a shepherd is to pursue lost sheep. Otherwise, you're just a sheep as part of the flock. If you want to be a leader amongst God's people, you pursue the souls of those who do not yet know the shepherd, except that they were not pursuing these souls. They were looking at these people and saying, absolutely no way. Could they be saved? In fact, I don't know that I even care about that because I have disdain toward them. I have some pent-up anger and aggression towards that line of thinking and that particular lifestyle and that way of being. Jesus is turning the scandal right back on the Pharisees and saying, God cares for these souls it's not about their level of sin it's just about the state of their being lost and I wonder today oftentimes when I come across a passage like this if we as little Christs as Christians as, as those who claim Jesus as Lord do we care for souls the way he does Are we red in the face and near tears over the lost? Dixie the other day was most likely facing certain ruin if that little girl didn't find her. And we have people that we interact with every single day that are waiting for a shepherd to come along, take the great and strenuous effort to throw them across their shoulders and lead them back to the place where they've always belonged. I know it's tough to work ourselves up the way we do when we lose our keys or lose our wallets or lose our dogs, but Jesus is trying to show the people who should know better that they should care about these souls with all their heart because God cares about these souls with all of his heart. He wants them to pursue the lost the way he pursues the lost. He wants them to care. He wants them to stop worrying about the level or gradation or, or level of the sin of the people that are around them 
and just see them as people exposed to ruin if they are not found. That's how the Bible describes people who do not yet know Jesus. And that's what he's trying to breed and bring in us as he tells these parables. Heaven cares for these souls, but to you. To you. I, I think that one of the hardest things is, is getting us geared up as Christians to care about lost souls. Because many times, it, it comes from a place of, of guilt. Like, oh, oh, oh. Yes, it's my fault I haven't been doing this. It's my fault I haven't cared. I, I can't stand it that I go about my life each and every day with, with so little care for the lost. Oh, what's wrong with me? And many times the emotion of that moment is for that moment alone. We feel bad for a time. But in essence, we look back at the 99 and say, you know what, we're good right here. But what if for just a few days of your life, a few weeks of your life, you said to yourself, I shall be a shepherd in the mold of Jesus. I don't want to be a sheep feeling safe in the presence of the 99. I want to be a shepherd risking effort to go after the souls of the lost. I believe this is what God would desire of us. After all, this Christmas season, we celebrate a time of life where he pursued us, went to great and strenuous lengths to find us. Could it be that his call for us this Christmas is to go to great and strenuous lengths to find others? Not judging them based on who they are, but just reminding ourselves what they are. Lost sheep that need to be found. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? I'd like to just do something physical to match the spiritual today, if I may, in our prayer time of commitment. If you have that little invitation handy that you were handed when you came in this morning, why don't you grab it? And why don't we just take a few minutes for those of us who plan to pass some of those out this week and say, God, would you go before me would you direct me? There's, some, there's a sheep out there. There's somebody that I can make a connection with. Could you help me to do that? Now, that invitation might be symbolic because what God calls you to do in the life of a lost person might go above and beyond handing them an invitation. I want you to hear that, and I hope it does. But for just a few minutes, let us make this place a house of prayer and say, God, would you make me a shepherd for a lost person this week? Would you send me in personal pursuit the way someone pursued me and led me to Jesus? And as AJ sings this morning, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and just make that prayer real, to, to pray that prayer for yourself. Maybe you just need the boldness to give out an invitation. Maybe that'd be a big step for you. Maybe, maybe you need to give that invitation to somebody who you decided was most likely left for dead. <laughs> maybe today God's calling you to do something greater than just an invitation. But why don't we pray today that God would lead us towards a lost sheep and that he'd give us the the drive to go find him.
Lord Jesus, would you bring to our minds today those who pursued us? Would you bring into our memory today those who shared the truth of the gospel with us? Would you remind us today of the way that you brought about the right interactions at the right time, at the right moment to lead us to Jesus? And Lord, would you then give us the impetus to walk in that this week, to walk in that this month, and say, Lord Jesus, let me be the shepherd in the life of another. Lord Jesus, let me be unto another what someone that you brought into my life was to me. God, use me in new and fresh ways. And Lord, we pray that lost ones will be found. We ask all these things in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you stand today? Well, did you have to clean off your car this morning? I did. Winter is here, but remember in the days to come that the light has come, and you get to testify to the light. In fact, the Lord Jesus says that you are the light of the world, so as the days get shorter and we turn on all types of Christmas lights, let's remember that we have light to bring, light to give, light to share, and that God's people are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, even in dark days. Father God, send us now with your blessing and use us to be an encouragement in the life of people everywhere. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you.